Well, good morning, everybody. We'd especially like to welcome those of you who thought you were coming to the 8.30 service. And uh, <laughs> glad you're here. I don't know about you, but this I, all night long I was just messed up thinking, I'm going to be late and uh, the clock's changing. I finally, this is how weird I am, I finally figured it out by Googling what time it was in India and matched that against my, because I knew they didn't do daylight savings time, just to make sure I was up on the right time. So I did it. But uh, so glad to be with you guys and so impressed by your church. I love it here, and I love who you guys are and what you're doing, and uh, so thankful uh, to be a part of it. So let's pray together as we dig into the Word and a little bit of what God's doing. So Father, thank you for this time. So grateful. And Lord, we just ask you now for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask you today for that spirit of wisdom and revelation to come in our lives. Lord, not just another message, not just more words, but Lord, that you would actually change us to make us more like your son, Jesus. Lord, that's why we've come today. We're not fulfilling an obligation of an hour of our Sunday morning. Lord, we're coming to meet you, and we pray that you would visit us today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, I got saved when I was 15 years old. That was 47 years ago. And uh, I got saved and started walking with the Lord. And by the grace of God, I can say over these 47 years, I've grown more and more in love with Jesus through those years. Now, I've had my good days and bad days, like all of us, but I'm so grateful for God's kindness to keep me going during these times. And I was thinking back on some prayers I prayed as a young man uh, that the Lord has just been so faithful to answer through the years. There's three of them. I can kind of categorize them into three different prayers that I prayed. Uh, The first one was this prayer, Lord, don't let me ever become complacent. And the reason I prayed that is because I got, as I got radical for the Lord as a college student, I didn't know one single 50-year-old man who was going hard after Jesus. Now, I'm not saying there, weren't, there were pl- plenty of 50-year-old men going hard after Jesus. I just didn't know any of them. And all the guys I knew had gotten saved young like me, and then as life had gone on, they'd just gotten beaten down by life and the world and their pressures and disappointments, and they just waned in their faith. And I thought, I don't want to be that guy. Lord, please don't let me become complacent. You know, I've never met anybody in their life that looked back and said, boy, I wish I wouldn't have followed Jesus so hard. You know, I regret that I spent all that time with the Lord. I've never met anybody like that. And I didn't want to become that guy. And God has been so faithful to answer that prayer. And that's another sermon that we'll do another time. Another prayer that my wife and I Uh, began praying right after we were married. And I don't really remember why we did, but it was a good one, was, Lord, what will bring you the most glory from our lives? We positioned ourselves, Lord, what's going to get you glory versus what do we want to do? And uh, that has been such an interesting journey. You know, I'd started in seminary, and then I got called out of seminary to be a missionary to the business world where I worked for 10 years. And then I got called out of the business world to go full-time in the ministry where I worked for 15 years. And I got called out of the ministry to go start a business and then do some part-time ministry. And now I own a business and I'm doing full-time ministry, working harder than I should be working at age 62 (laughs) years old, but so grateful to God. And what I learned through that and, and through this is one of my friends says it this way, it's not about your occupation, it's about your preoccupation. If we position ourselves to say, Lord, what will bring you the most glory from our lives, then he's got a wonderful adventure for us. 
And I'm not saying it was always easy. There were some terrifying moments on the roller coaster, but we always got to the other side of it. And that's what God's faithfulness. That's a second sermon, but a third sermon. We'll do some other time. Today, I want to focus on the third prayer uh, that I prayed. And we find the scripture reference in this out of the book of Philippians chapter 3. Now, the, the background of this passage is Paul is writing to the people in Philippi. And what happened after the gospel came in in those early days right after Jesus' death was that uh, people were receiving the good news of God, the message of God by grace. But then some religious folks came and kept putting laws and rules on top of the grace. You have to be circumcised. You have to do this and that. And Paul, in his letter, spends a great deal of time and energy offsetting that and saying, no, it's by grace and grace only that you are saved through faith and not a result of anything that you do in your own lives. So that's happening here in Philippi. And Paul finds himself in a position where he's having to defend himself to the people. So in the first few verses of, of chapter 3, he talks about all of his qualifications. Then in verse 7, it seems like Paul just gets tired of it. He gets tired of defending himself, and he just changes his whole tune, and he says this, Whatever things were gained to me, I now consider them loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may know Christ. He's looking back and saying, who cares about my past? Who cares about my qualifications? That's all garbage compared to knowing Jesus. Isn't that great? I love that. He says that I consider them garbage that I gain Christ to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, so somehow attaining to resurrection from the dead. It was that last verse that I began praying as a young man and saying, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you in my life. Now, I really like that first part of chapter, uh, verse 10 where it says, I want to know the power of your resurrection. I mean, we all like that, don't we? Man, I want to lay hands on the sick. I want to see you, God, move. And, and by the grace of God, I've gotten to see some things like that. As a young man, that second part of verse 10 scared me. You know, I want to know you through participation in your sufferings. That's a hard one to pray, isn't it? And what I've found is you go through life, hey, you're going to experience it, whether you like it or not. Now at 62 years old, I can look back and say, you're going to have sufferings. But I want to tell you and just encourage you with this. Some of the most difficult times in my life were the times I felt closer to Jesus than any other time. He's there, and we can know him in our sufferings. I'm not downplaying those hard times. And man, I always wish that, Lord, could I learn this any other way? Could I learn through the still small voice instead of the big two-by-four over the backside of the head? And uh, sometimes it just comes through that uh, two-by-four, unfortunately. But he's good, and I want to know him. And that prayer actually uh, relates to what I want to talk to you about today because in 1996, this idea of knowing Jesus took on a new meaning uh, for me and my wife. We were in a, a, a meeting, actually, and a prophetic invitation came to try to uh, understand what God's heart for the poor was all about. 
And we said, yes, just a really simple, yeah, Lord, we want to understand. It was, a, it was an invitation. It wasn't a command, but the Lord said, come into this. Are you willing to do this? And, and my wife and I said, yes. You know, I want to just say this. Of all the big things that have happened in my life, they always started with a simple little yes to something. That's what always opens up the big stuff in your life. If you're waiting for that cloud to come in the shape of Thailand so God's calling you there, you, I don't know one single person that's ever seen that cloud. I don't. But if you say yes to the little invitations God's putting in front of you, it unlocks big things. And that's what happened in this situation. So we said yes to that. And uh, I didn't share this in the other services, but the day after a guy calls me, and leaves me a voicemail. And he said, I was praying for you this morning and I felt like the Lord gave me 2 Kings 20 for your life. Have a great day, you know? <laughs> it took me a couple of days to get around to reading 2 Kings 20. But 2 Kings 20 is when the prophet comes to Hezekiah and says, get your life in order because you're going to die, not live. That's the chapter. I thought prophecy was supposed to be encouraging, you know? <laughs> And I kept looking through the whole, but it was the whole chapter. So I thought, well, surely it's not that verse, you know? And I kept looking through the whole chapter, but the Lord kept landing on me on that verse. And he said, life as you know it is about to change. And it wasn't a scary, fearful thing. It was like that invitation, saying yes to something. So my wife and I said, yes, we want to understand your heart for the poor. Now, my wife and I were the worst candidates in the world for this. I mean, I grew up in the world of pro football. My dad was involved with the Kansas City Chiefs organization from the time I was four until about uh, 10 or 12 years ago. So almost all my life, I grew up in that. I knew nothing about poor or poverty. I never missed a meal, never had to worry about any of that. My wife came from an equally affluent kind of background. And I think the Lord said, let's pick out the worst people for this. Because if they can get it, it may give hope to everybody else in the earth that they can get it. And, uh, and so we went on this journey and we thought, okay, we got we to gotta know what to do. So we said, well, we got to experience it. So we started hanging out in the inner city of Kansas City. Now we were able to find the inner city and that was a good thing. And we went there and my wife is a school teacher. And so she decided, let's start a little children's outreach on Friday nights at the Wayne Minor Housing Project there in Kansas City. And so uh, it's summertime, and we're doing that, and my job is to go and recruit people to come to the outreach. But my secret desire is I want to just get people to talk to me because I want to understand what it is in this book that God says over and over and over again about the poor. Why does it capture God's heart so much? So I found this one dear woman uh, who put up with me. Her name was Sandy. And Sandy was not untypical of probably uh, some of the people living in this particular housing product, project. She was uh, in her early 50s. She had 10 kids. Um, she had, you know, through a variety of men, she was working a kind of a no-end, minimum wage job. But she was nice, and she was kind, and she would sit on her stoop with me, and we would just talk about life, and I'd fire questions at her, because I was, I was on a journey. I, wanted to, I was on a mission. I wanted to understand what God was talking about. And so Sandy, I would look at Sandy and I would think, okay, she, her life doesn't make any sense to me. But then she would say things that sounded more like Jesus than me. Wow. And it just messed with me. 
it would blew all my circuits because I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile. Oh, wait a minute. I look at your life and then you say this. Now I'll give you an example. Uh, one time she was talking about, she worked at this inner city nursing home where she made minimum wage. And uh, she said to me one time, we're just talking. She says, I got to go get a second job. And I said, really, why do you need a, why do you need a second job? And she said, because my boys need tennis shoes. I don't have any money to buy tennis shoes for them. And by the way, Sandy was, she never asked me for money, never looked at me as her answer for stuff. And, uh, and I said to her and my good understanding, well, couldn't you just go get a job that pays you more money? And she said, yeah, of course I could. She said, but those people in the nursing home, they need me. So she was willing to take on a second job out of love while I'm thinking about do what's best for yourself. Which one sounds more like Jesus to you guys, okay? This is what happened to me so many times over and over and over. But one of the most impacting experiences I ever had was when I went to visit Sandy in this nursing home where she worked at. And it was not a nursing home like I'd ever been in before. It was in the inner city. It was a three-story house. It was the dead of winter in Kansas City, and the heat was so hot in there. I about died going in there. But it was filled with people. There were, there were elderly people, like you would expect in a nursing home, but there were mentally ill people in there. There were people coming out of jail in rehab, and there were people rehabbing injuries in there. It was like a three-ring circus. And uh, I mean, people everywhere and loud and too hot. And I'm just sitting there watching all this and trying to take it in. And this guy walks by me. And at the time, I'm in my 40s. And he looks like he's about my age, you know, long stringy hair. And uh, I, you know, on crutches, he's on crutches, a guy that obviously was homeless. And I looked at him and I thought, well, I'm the Christian. I had to do something nice here. So I reached out my hand and introduced myself. I said, hey, I'm Don. And he took my hand. He said, I'm Tommy. And I said, Tommy, what happened to you? Now I got to tell you in my mind, I probably had already determined what had happened to him, that maybe he was drunk and fell down some steps. And now the government was paying for him to get well again. And my tax dollars, you know, all that stuff that we do. (laughs) And Tommy looked at me and he said, well, I was walking down this alley and there were 10 men that had surrounded this 14 year old girl and they were going to assault her. And he said, so I got in the middle of it and created a commotion so she could run away. And he said, she got away, but they shot me. They stabbed me three times and they beat me with a carjack. And then he put his little bony finger in my face and he said, you know what? I'd do it again because it was the right thing to do. And I just, I couldn't breathe, you know, I was like, okay, thank you. And I as quickly as I could just walked out of the place because I was so undone by this story. And I was walking to my car and I started thinking about my daughter who at the time was 14 years old. And I thought, would I risk my life for my daughter in a situation like that? And I thought, yeah, I'm sure I would. But then I started thinking, would I risk my life for a girl I didn't know in a place where she probably shouldn't have been? Would I risk my life for that? And before I could answer yes or no, praise God, out of his mercy, I felt the Lord speak to me. Now, I didn't hear it audibly, but it was crystal clear. And he said, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. Go read it again. Now, I had grown up in Sunday school. I had done the coloring pages, the felt board, the flannel graph, (laughs) and probably had acted out the Good Samaritan at some point in my history. But all of a sudden, 
As I read Luke 10 and went through that story again, I, I thought, this is what Jesus is talking about. It became new in a whole new way. And these experiences were just, they were blowing all my circuits. What I had understood and what I was seeing is the truth. So uh, one day I'm in a ministry line and I'm, I'm just praying and I feel like the Lord says to me, you know, you're about an inch deep and a mile wide in understanding my heart for the poor. And I want you to go deep. So I started devouring the scripture. You know, God talks about the poor everywhere in this book. I don't know what you read, but I, re I read it with new lenses on. And I begin to see it's everywhere. What is it about the Lord? And we came across this verse in this passage out of Jeremiah chapter 22. Now, this is probably not the chapter where you spent your quiet time this morning. But uh, the story and the background of the story is this. Israel uh, has divided into two nations. There's the nation of Israel and there's the nation of Judah. Both of them are going away from the Lord. And, and God has threatened them with uh, captivity. I mean, he's telling them, you're, just, you're making, digging a hole for yourself and it's going to lead you into captivity. Israel, the nation, has already been taken away by the Babylonians into captivity. God in his mercy is coming to Judah and begging them and giving them an opportunity again to repent. Don't you love that about the Lord? I mean, it never is too late, you guys. And he's coming and he's giving them a chance and saying, please, Please turn, please turn back. And uh, there's these evil kings and the last of the four kings. And of course, they don't listen to the word of the Lord and they too go into captivity. But there's a good king. The last good one is a guy named Josiah. And then he has four guys after him, one of whom is his son, Jehoiakim. And that's what this passage is about here. The prophet speaking to him and challenging him to come back to the Lord. But this is what he says. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. What was happening was this king was using slave labor to build a better house for himself. He was oppressing the people because he wanted better things for himself. And, and the prophet comes and says, you know, it's not wrong to want good things for yourself. It's not wrong for, for you to want your life to go well. He said, but you're looking in all the wrong places. Look at your father. Look what he did. His life went well. He defended, it says, it goes on and says, he defended the poor and the needy so all went well. But it's this last sentence that he says here that so captured us. Is this not knowing me, says the Lord. And I think back to that prayer I prayed as a, a young man, Lord, I want to know you. And the Lord says, yeah, there's a part of me that you only know as you get your life involved with the poor. There's something about me among the poor that you're not getting, and that's why I'm invited you into it. He was answering my prayer all those years. Now, I was 40 years old at the time when, this, when I first got this revelation. I had been a pastor for seven years. I'd done, I had a Bible degree. I'd gone to seminary, didn't finish it, but gone to seminary. I had been involved in every way, and I knew that God cared about the poor. I knew right up here that he cared about the poor. But the Lord said, no, I'm going to bring it right down into here. I want you to get my heart, not just my head around the poor. So I'm talking about this in probably one of those conferences you came to. And a guy comes to me and says, if you're going to talk about the poor, you have to see the poor of the earth because it's totally different than the, than the poor of the U.S. 
And you know what? I was 41 years old and had never been on a missions trip. Now, it wasn't that I didn't think missions was a good thing. Again, I was a pastor. I thought it was a good thing. It's in the Bible. You know, you do the nation stuff and it's good. It was a good thing. It was just never my thing. It was always somebody else's thing. But now all of a sudden it became personal because I was convinced God wanted to teach me about himself that I was going to know Jesus as I went to the poor. And so I wanted to see it. I wanted to go. And it always had been hard to figure out. I was 41 years old with six kids and a busy job. And how do you pull this off? But that didn't matter anymore because Jesus said, is this not knowing me? And I wanted to know him. So my wife and I, and we took our two oldest kids, and we went on the worst planned mission trip in the history of mission trips. <laughs> you could never do one as bad as we did. I promise you, there's no possible way. We, this guy uh, set up a trip for us to go to Chennai, India in March. Now, India has three seasons in the year. They're hot, hotter, and hottest, okay? <laughs> and we think March is springtime. It's hottest in India. Chennai, India in March is like Houston, Texas in August on steroids. It is brutal, hot and humid and miserable. And we went there and uh, we, we went, there are a billion Indians in India. We did not know one, not one Indian. We had no program planned. I'm telling you, this was a poorly planned trip, okay? It's a week-long trip. We know nobody. We have no idea where we're going, and we're just going to see the poor of the earth. And after 48 hours, I'm secretly thinking, Lord, get me out of here. Can I leave? How do I get a plane to go back home? Because I was just overwhelmed. It was too much. But then in the midst of it, we have a divine appointment. And it's interesting how this happened. It came in response to another little, yes, Lord. The Lord had spoken to my wife, actually, the story that happens. I have a dream on the second night we're there. And in my dream, I'm quitting the ministry because I can't do it anymore. I mean, I was depressed, you guys. This was not going well. And I wake up in the morning, and my wife's about an inch away from my face, waiting for me to wake up. And uh, being so kind, not waking me up, but she's been up with jet lag. And I open my eyes, and she says, I know what we're supposed to do. Remember, we had no plans. And I said, please tell me, because I just quit the ministry. <laughs> and she said, she said, I feel like the Lord said, keep good notes, take journal of what you're doing, and pray for anybody you get a chance to pray for. Now, this is Monday. We're leaving on Friday. And I thought, I can do this for four more days. I can survive, and I can do this. And you know, without going into the story, because it's a long story, that little yes to that word when we prayed for somebody the next day, it unlocked a divine appointment <clears throat> that has changed the course of our lives. And, and the relationships that started with that are now some relationships that we've had for over 20 years. I've been to India 35 times and would be more if they hadn't kicked me out of the country, which <laughs> happened three years ago. And I, I, I love India. I mean, I'm the guy that goes to Costco and, and tackles the people with saris on and says, where are you from? You know, you're my new best friend. And they all look at me. But, but I fell in love with it because of what God was doing. We met the Lord. And it changed our lives. So why is this? What is it about the poor? Well, I was thinking about this passage in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, which I didn't know when I came here. But this is actually a foundational 
passage for this congregation. If you go over there in the offices, it's up on the walls. And what's happening in this passage is Jesus has just started his ministry. And people, the word's getting out a little bit about him. There are probably a few miracles here and there. And he goes to his hometown and he goes to the synagogue as was his normal practice. And he is asked to read the scripture reading that day to be the guest speaker. So he goes and they give him the scroll of Isaiah. Now, I don't know if they said the scripture reading for today is Isaiah 61 or if he got to pick the place. It really doesn't matter. But this is what he reads in verse 8. And, and we uh, read about it in Luke 4:18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down and it says all the eyes are on him. And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Every good Jew knew that this was a promise about the Messiah. You know, Jesus fulfilled over 400 promises in the Old Testament about being the Messiah. But when God chose to introduce him, his son to the world, when it was Jesus' reveal party, if you will, this is what he used, Isaiah 61. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now, why? Why would he do it this way? I mean, shouldn't it say the, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the rich and famous? I mean, wouldn't you think if God wanted to change the world that he would do it through the movie stars and the professional athletes and the movers and the shakers and the business owners and the politicians? Wouldn't that be the way that you would think you would go about changing the whole world? But he says, no, it's the poor. It's through the poor that the world is going to change. Why? Why is this? Well, I think we find the answer to this in James, the second chapter. And uh, in this passage, uh, James is writing to uh, the churches and he says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes comes in also. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now here's the key verse, verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? What James is saying is, why would you show preferential treatment to the rich? All they can do is give you stuff. The poor can give you faith. Which do you want? The poor have faith. And this has been my experience. I'd like to tell you that I've done all these great things. No, my life has been changed by the poor. I think about a, a young guy that I had uh, befriended. He was a refugee from the nation of Bhutan. Uh, he was a Hindu guy. His name was Ram Rai. And I, with a couple of his buddies, um, I would go and spend time with him <clears throat> in Kansas City. And, and one time I went to his apartment, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, while I'm there talking with these guys, he gets a phone call and he's been laid off from his work. Now, that's a big deal when you come from another country and you got nothing. And so he was devastated. And I said, Ram, could we pray right now in the name of Jesus for you to get your job back? And he said, sure, you know, so full of faith, even though he's a Hindu. And I said, all right, we prayed in Jesus' name, kind of nothing spectacular. I left. I came back and visited him three weeks later. As soon as I opened the door, he said, I got my job back. 
And I said, oh, that's great. I said, was it just a temporary layoff? What happened? And he looked at me and he goes, it was your Jesus. He got me my job back. And I thought, man, I just been witnessed to by a Hindu. What is wrong with me? But I love that. I love the faith that's there. They're rich in faith. I, I think of one of the stories from our, uh, one of our churches in India. Our pastor there is a guy named Deva, and he said one day after church he uh, was praying, and a lady came forward for prayer after the service, and he said, how can I pray for you? Her name was Lakshmi. And Lakshmi said, my husband is an alcoholic, and I've got these small children, and my husband never comes home sober, never comes home hardly. When he does come, he's always drunk, and he never brings us food. And she said, today I had my last piece of food, a cracker that I gave to my daughter. And she said, and I'm out of food. I have nothing left. She said, I haven't eaten, and I'm tying a rope around my stomach just to take care of the hunger pains. And he prayed for her. And the next day she calls him on a Monday and says, Pastor, you're not going to believe it. My husband came home last night. He was, he was sober, and he brought food. And she was just so grateful. And David said, that's awesome. And so now David's church had planned to take a mission trip. And the next Friday, so this is on Monday when she calls him, on Friday, they're going to have a commissioning service and take an offering up for those who are going on this mission trip. And so he's there in the service and he watches Lakshmi come with a bag full of coins and put them into the offering for the, for the mission trip. And he thinks, man, God has really blessed her this week. That is so awesome. And she didn't even have food. Now she's got money to give into the offering. And he goes up afterwards kind of to congratulate her and say, wow, the Lord has really blessed you this week with that money and everything else. And she said, oh, no, pastor, I've been saving that money for months. He said, you've been saving money while you didn't have any food to eat? Why didn't you buy yourself food? And she said, because if I die, I'll be with Jesus. But if those people die having never heard, they won't get to be with Jesus. Yeah, it's about at that time where I always ask, am I even saved? You know, <laughs> you hear those stories. But the poor are, are rich in faith. When um, in 1999, I was diagnosed with cancer, talking about one of those things of suffering. And I got to, I, just after I'd gone to India for the first time, and so I was going through treatments, radiation, chemotherapy, stuff that was really hard. And obviously I live, so that's good. But uh, uh, there was a church in India that I'd never met the people, but they canceled their Sunday service, put a handkerchief in front of the service, and everybody came, laid hands on it, prayed, wept in it, everything else, and then sent it to me in the mail. And you know, when I was going through that difficult time, I just kept that in my pocket. And I, whenever I'd get discouraged, I'd just grab that and say, Lord, surely you hear the prayers of the poor. They're rich in faith. And he raised me up and gave me hundreds of friends through that, people that I feel like saved my life. You know, just in a couple of weeks here, I get to go to Kathmandu, Nepal, and I get to go to one of my favorite churches on the earth. It's called Sundar Doka, and it's led by a pastor whose name is Babu Kasi. Here's the story of Babu Kasi. When he uh, was young, he married a 13-year-old girl from a village. That's not super uncommon in some of the villages in the world. And uh, she, within the first year, became pregnant. So she's 14 years old and pregnant, and he, for some reason, is up in a tree, and he falls out of a tree and breaks his neck and breaks his back and becomes a paraplegic. So she has the baby, so he's a paraplegic with a 14-year-old wife and a baby 
in a country that has no systems to take care of the handicap. So in the process, they end up at a Christian mission hospital uh, where he's getting treatment, and they get saved. And he and his wife decide uh, to go to the church, but the church doesn't want them for some reason, I think because he's handicapped and they don't know how to accommodate him. And he can't ever find a church that will take him in, so he says, okay, I'll just start my own church. So the first time I went to an elders meeting in his church, it was five guys in a wheelchair, in wheelchairs, and a blind worship leader. And I thought, I'm pretty sure this is where Jesus would go to church. <laughs> and you know, whenever I get to go there, there are still people in their, their church with leprosy. But the thing that's amazing to me every time I go is to see their faces and the joy of the Lord on people that would be considered the poorest on the earth. They have nothing, but they have Jesus. And I can't understand their language, but I'm telling you, I feel the presence of God every time I'm there. It's like I just go and I, I can weep every time. And I think, God, they're so rich in faith. And I think about all the people that have had so much, the wealthy people that I've seen that are so miserable, and these who are so poor, full of joy. The, the poor are rich in faith. Okay, so what does this have to do with us except hopefully you're encouraged that, man, I want to get in this deal. I want to give, get in on this deal. Well, King David, who is the greatest king of all of his, uh, Israel's history, rich King David says this in Psalm 40, verse 17. He said, but I am poor and needy, and yet the Lord thinks about me. The reality is every one of us is, right? right? In different ways. We're poor and we're needy. We all know that. We're all broken. My son Drew, who a lot of you know, Drew uh, is very wise beyond his years. And I say he came out of the womb wise. And uh, when he was about 16 years old, one time he and I were doing a father-son deal. And I, uh, he was talking. He said, Dad, I like poor people better than rich people. And I said, really? I said, why is that? And he goes, they're nicer. I thought, well, that's true. And so I thought, well, okay, I'm going to use this as a moment just to kind of get to his heart a little bit. And I said, but, but Drew, they have so many problems, so many issues. And he looked at me and said, Dad, kind of like, duh, Dad. He said, rich people have just as many issues. They just know how to hide them better. And I thought, wow, isn't that true? So the reality of the matter is, is we're all poor. And the, and the reality of the matter is in that time in those places of poverty in our own life or whether we get involved with those who are poor, God says, I'm going to give you riches of faith. And isn't that really what we all want? We want the riches of faith. So what do we do about this? You know, it says uh, in Matthew 5, 3, I love this translation out of, the, out of the Beatitudes, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him for the kingdom of God is theirs. You know, God loves being father. He loves dependency. He loves desperation. He loves to meet you. I tell the story about when my, my five boys and when my boys were young, uh, the two youngest ones were Matt and Jack. And Matt was three years older than Jack. And they were good buddies, but they were brothers. And so that man, every now and then, screaming came from someplace in the house as they were in a fight. And you know, when I would go up there, Matt was about a foot taller than Jack. Guess whose side I was always on when I can't went into the room? I, would, I was always on Jack's side, at least initially. Wasn't mean, didn't mean he wasn't the instigator, because often he was. It didn't mean I loved him more. I loved my boys the same. 
But he was the weaker one. He was the more desperate one. He was the one that needed the needier one. And my heart was inclined to him. You know, God is a father. And if you've come today and you feel like, wow, that's me, I want to just tell you good news to you. God has something for you. He loves you in your desperation. But I also, my hope today is that God touches your own heart and says, I want to look at people differently. I want to see them in a different light because there's something they have for me. So why don't we all stand together?